and welcome to Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And today we're talking about the Emperor Nero. Before this episode, we have every content warning because the Romans were bad people. (laughs) It's just the way it is. There's going to be some just general misogyny and a brief mention of fairly intense domestic violence. There are also mentions of trans misogyny. I guess I would argue both in the ancient times and now. There is a great deal of violence in this episode. There are many assassinations, forced suicides, executions, and some executions specifically as a form of religious persecution against Christians. There is also a lot of sex in this episode. The Romans had two pastimes and they weren't bread and circuses. (laughs) So there'll be explicit discussions of sex, and this includes sex with large power imbalances, so with slaves and or freedmen, and also uh, between people with a large age gap. There'll be mentions of incest, rape, and sex work, and a large portion of this episode is going to deal with forced castration and feminization. So if any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to... Okay. (laughs) Please feel free to go listen to any other episode that is not about Romans, and almost certainly it will not have all of those. This is the second episode in our Roman Emperors series, and the first one that is about an emperor. (laughs) If you're interested in some wider Roman context or some more Roman history, we did an episode a while ago on male-male sexuality in ancient Rome, as well as an episode about Julius Caesar. We're not, as we go forward with these episodes, going to do a section each time recapping what sexual mores were for Romans because we don't have time yeah that's like that'll get boring real quick um i will clarify things as we feel it's necessary in the episode in this episode we are going to talk very very briefly about the julio claudians in general of whom nero was the last and then we are also quite briefly going to go through nero's biography and then we're gonna like talk for a long time about all the sexuality stuff which is why we're really here okay Because we're going to zoom through it all pretty quick, we're not going to have time to get into a lot of stuff that is very debated by historians. So pretty much every big thing that Nero is known for, it's debated what exactly happened or if it happened at all. Are you suggesting he didn't fiddle while Rome burned? I am going to venture that that may not be strictly true. (laughs) Okay. So we're just going to have to keep in mind that nothing is true and... That's how the ancient world is. History is fragmentary, yep. Regarding the sources we have for what did happen in Nero's life, unlike when we did our Caesar episode, Nero himself wrote nothing that survives to us. There is mention of him writing poetry, but that is lost. He didn't write, like, a memoir or anything like that. There were biographies and memoirs and other sources written during his lifetime, but they don't survive either. So our main sources on Nero are from at least a few decades, if not a few hundred years after he died. So our biggest sources are the historians slash biographers, Suetonius and Tacitus. Neither of these men were contemporary with Nero. Of the two, Tacitus is the older, and he was about 12 or 13 when Nero died. But Suetonius was born after Nero died. So obviously he's not drawing from first-hand accounts of what happened. Tacitus wrote two books, his Annals and his Histories, which both deal with Roman history. And Suetonius wrote a work generally called The Twelve Caesars, or The Lives of the Twelve Caesars in English, dealing with the first 12 leaders of the Roman Empire. So Julius Caesar and then some real emperors. 
<laughs> I feel like there are a lot of things that go on in the ancient world, which I hear about vaguely from you two. And it's a bit like when you see a post go past your dashboard <laughs> on Tumblr for a fandom you're not in. And, and part of it is the was Caesar and Emperor discourse. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't. Cassius Dio is our other major source for Nero's life, and he was writing much later. So he lived from around 164 to 229, which is like, he was born like 100 years after Nero died. Yeah, okay, yeah. And the reason why he's valuable is because there's some stuff that he talks about that neither Suetonius and Tacitus discuss at all. Mm-hmm. But then that raises the question of like, well, where are you getting that from? Is it just because someone made that up in the intervening 100 years? Potentially. Yeah. Yes. So that's just a quick overview, basically to communicate the idea that none of these people have a first-hand account, that they're writing much later, and of course that they're going to be biased because of all of the sources they have to sift through and the later political times that they're writing in. So what we understand about Nero's life basically comes from comparing their accounts and trying to figure out if they're plausible and if they're consistent and what their sources might have been and whatnot, which, as you can imagine, is very straightforward. Sure, I am sure. So basically what you're telling us is that we know very little about Nero, but you think he might be gay. Uh, sure, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> so at the end of our Caesar episode, Caesar got stabbed many times. True. And after that, his grandnephew and adopted son Octavian rose to prominence as a military and political figure. He established himself as the sole ruler of Rome, renamed himself Augustus, and generally sets about being the emperor. That is literally all we're going to say about the age of Augustus. (laughs) He's succeeded by his adopted son Tiberius, and their combined reigns last for over 60 years. Both men are pretty skilled politicians, and Rome is therefore left in Decent shape when Tiberius dies. Thanks, Tiberius. Thanks, Tiberius. That was all very contentious. I'm just going to take your word for it, honestly. Yeah. Tiberius is succeeded by his adopted grandson Caligula, who is chiefly remembered for being depraved and cruel. And Bouticans. And Bouticans, indeed. He was assassinated after just four years as the emperor, which gives you an idea of how depraved and cruel. So was the dumb thing generally then to, like, adopt an heir? Uh, the dumb thing was to desperately try to set up an heir in a rapidly developing political system based around having an heir when your children were either being murdered or sucked. Okay. <laughs> it was quite normal to adopt in Rome, so people would quite often, like, adopt their sons out in order to make political alliances and things like that adoption is very normal but yeah you will notice that this isn't like augustus's son and then his son and then his son at all it's much more complicated than that by the time caligula is murdered the julio claudian house has dwindled because its members have just kept murdering each other in the hopes of becoming the emperor that would do it yes and Caligula is succeeded by his uncle, Claudius. Claudius was physically disabled in some way, and he was therefore written off by Roman society as basically not being relevant or a threat to other people who wanted to become emperor, but he was a pretty intelligent and capable ruler. And now we're up to when Nero was born. Okay. So that was a very quick run-through of things that encompass people's entire careers. I do want to quickly note that just because we're not talking about any of those men in their own episodes is not to insinuate that they were the straight emperors (laughs) and that Nero is a gay emperor. Which, you know, if you listen to our episode on Roman uh, 
<laughs> sexual mores should be obvious, but like it is kind of something that historians will accidentally implicitly support when they write about ancient Rome. And so I just wanted to make a note of it that probably most or all of these men had some kind of same-sex sexual experience in their lives. That was the norm in ancient Rome. We're just kind of going to pick and choose the ones that we think are interesting. Yeah, fair enough. So there are no straight emperors. Oh, there is one straight. Yeah, there is one. (laughs) The token straight emperor. Yeah, there's like it's like a notable thing that they were like he seemed to never be interested in men. He only liked women. Yeah, which gives you an idea of how normalized it was to be sexually interested in men or boys in ancient Rome. So Nero. Nero was born Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus in 37 CE. His mother was Agrippina the Younger, and she was Caligula's sister. She was a very ruthlessly ambitious and political woman. She married Claudius, who was her uncle, in order to try and manoeuvre Nero into the line of succession, and this worked pretty well. So what happened to Nero's father? He died a while ago and isn't relevant. Okay, that's fair. I can't remember exactly how, but he's, like, not a part of this story. Okay. He had a, like, red beard, a Hanabarbus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and was, by all accounts, kind of a douche. He allegedly, I can't remember which biographer says this, but he allegedly made a comment that, like, no good was going to come of he and Agrippina's child because they were both, like, all people. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, me and my wife do both suck. Yeah. (laughs) I Um, guess self-awareness. Yeah, like, that was almost certainly made up. Yeah. You know. (laughs) The general public perception is that he and Agrippina both suck. <laughs> so given that his father had a red beard, I'm just going off topic straight away. Do Nero you know, was a ginger, yes. Yeah, that was the question. Yes. Was Nero a ginger? <laughs> Nero was a ginger, yeah. He was a ginger. He had a, like, neck beard, which was, like, a style at the time. So he had, like, a sort of shaved chin, but, like, yeah. a red neck beard. And he had a mullet. And, like, it's, you know, <laughs> oh at the God. time it made sense. But it's, it's one of those things where it's really hard to look at, like, statues of him yeah. and not just be like, What? <laughs> As it stands, he very much sounds like like an eighties Australian rock star kind of gone to seed. That's uh, yeah, the no, hairstyle I'm hearing. I think here. that we could make a decent adaptation of Nero in. Uh, no, we could. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> um, Claudius soon adopts Nero, who is then named Nero. He takes the name Nero Claudius Drusus Germanicus, and Claudius starts grooming him fairly obviously to be a potential successor. So Nero is married to Claudius's daughter Octavia. Interestingly, she had to then be adopted out, just as Nero had been adopted in, Aww. in order for there not to be a kind of like pseudo incest situation happening. <laughs> so he was just like, look, I'll just do a switch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nero is also given various like public offices and roles to fulfill, so he's kind of starting to make a bit of a name for himself in public. And he's still effectively a child at this point. Hmm. Like a teenager? Yeah, like an early teens. Okay, okay. So he takes a toga virilis when he's like 13 years old. Which what? is very early. That's the sort of like formal, you're a man now. And I didn't realize there was like a manly yeah, toga ceremony. There's yeah. a manly toga ceremony. It's not a sort of set thing. Like you don't become a man at this year. You just kind of take on that role when your family decides it's time for you to do it. Okay. And 13 is not normal. Are they like pushing him or is he just like very mature for his age? Um, I wouldn't say he's mature for his age at any point. I think it's just, (laughs) yeah, like, I think this tends to happen with very high up boys sometimes. It's like he's being pushed into a political career, basically. Yeah, okay. By Agrippina. So Agrippina is having some success at positioning Nero as the person who will become emperor. And it's for this reason that Agrippina is generally suspected as being the cause of Claudius's sudden death in 54 CE, apparently the result of poisoning by a mushroom. So he's dead now. Because Agrippina 
has a lot of connections and a lot of influence. Nero quite smoothly takes power and he becomes the youngest emperor so far at the age of 16 in 54 CE. That was weirdly straightforward. Yep. Agrippina was just like, I want him to be the emperor. Cool. It's done. Put all my pieces in line. Let's go. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, this is her life's work essentially. So yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> during the start of his reign, he's controlled by his mother, by his tutor, who was the writer and philosopher Seneca and by Burrus, who is the Praetorian Prefect, and they essentially rule for him. What is the Praetorian Prefect? Unlike the guard. Yeah, it's like the head of the Imperial Guard, I guess. So like the gold cloaks in uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> if that means anything to you, who I understand has not consumed this media. This yes. is true. The first five years of his reign are actually pretty good. The Empire enjoys peace. He's just kind of enjoying being rich. I mean, I guess he's like, fundamentally not running the empire he's kind of never really running the empire though he does what emperors tend to do at the start of their reign which is to give more powers to the senate and to do away with trials that are called intracubiculum in latin but what it means is basically like trials in private with no real court system just like the emperor and his friends Okay, so I have a question. You said he did what emperors tend to do at their start of their reign. Is this a thing that emperors do where they come in and they're like, I'm going to make everything like democratic and nice. We'll give the Senate some more powers, no more private trials. And then by the time they're like 50, they're like, no, total power. To varying degrees, yeah. So the emperor still relies very much on the Senate, at least on the surface of things, for being like allowed to be the emperor yeah and so when it's still quite delicate and they're only just assuming power it tends to be this very like placating relationship where they're like i'm you know not going to like take all of the power for myself you know i respect this ancient body of the senate i'm gonna cut taxes you know all that kind of (laughs) stuff and then as they kind of get used to being in power more or as they feel like they're able to get away with it more, they yeah. will backslide on all of their early promises and start just, like, executing people and things like that. Okay. Um, like, to varying degrees, <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah. Like, we have a scale of bad at emperor in the Julio Accordions. So on this scale, where do you think you'd put Nero? Oh, Nero is, like, the worst. <laughs> he's, <laughs> okay. he's not the worst, but he's, like, you know... Caligula's like, here, but, like, you know... The, the classic, like, two bad emperors that people have heard of are Caligula and Nero. Okay, so Nero's, like, a 9 out of 10. Badness. On the bad scale. On the bad scale. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. pretty bad, yeah. Alright, cool. I mean, if there's like five emperors and... A ten badness scale. Yeah, so if we have a five badness scale and five is the worst, he's a four, I guess. Alright. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Who is emperor number one? No. No. <sighs> okay. No. <laughs> Just okay. no. Maybe Claudius. I was going to say Claudius. Yeah, I, yeah, Claudius. I think it's Claudius. Alright. I will not ask any further. Yeah, Yeah, we're not ranking the emperors. I don't really have strong feelings between Augustus and Tiberius. Agrippina is obviously overjoyed that this has happened, and she starts to try and assert herself further politically. She's granted quite unusual privileges for a woman and for the mother of the emperor, such as being displayed on coins and being able to listen into meetings of the Senate. I think other women do achieve that, but it's very, very mm. rare. It's definitely not a normal thing where it's just like, oh, you're related to the emperor, hey, come to the Senate. So... Or where you're any woman and you're allowed to come to the Senate. And she's not even allowed to, like, join in. She's allowed to sit behind a curtain and listen in. And that's already a huge deal. So when you say displayed on coins, yes. is it like we have the queen on our coins, all the coins have the same face on them? Or are there, like, a variety of coins and just some of them are Agrippina coins? Yeah, it's like the latter. So it's not like she's the one person on the back of all the coins. Like, obviously Nero's on a lot of coins. Yeah, okay. 
I think also like governors of particular provinces who do really well will be on a few coins yeah, here like, and there and things like that. They do strike coins to commemorate a variety of things as well mm. and stuff like that. Okay, I guess yeah, like yeah. we do, you know. Yeah, we yeah. Do, like, yeah. So yeah. she's on the front of the coins and narrows on the back, I guess. I'm sure. I don't know. She's um, on some coins, but it's not like all coins are Agrippina coins. Okay, yeah. cool. This behavior of hers was seen as a problem and an embarrassment for the Roman state. So, for example, there's an incident where some ambassadors come from, I think, Armenia, and Agrippina sort of, like, gets up to go and stand beside Nero as he goes to greet them, and everyone panics because this is going to be incredibly embarrassing that a woman would dare to be present for this sort of function and try to have a role in it. And so Nero is signaled by Seneca to just, like, walk to her and greet her and then lead her away and out of the room. As Nero gets older, he starts to rebel against her as well as against his other mentors. And as a result of this, Agrippina starts to show favor to Britannicus, who was Claudius's son from his wife, Messalina, his wife before Agrippina. And as a result of this, Britannicus is poisoned. Is Britannicus older than Nero then? No, he's younger, which is oh, part okay. of the reason yeah. why Nero was able to get favor. So like while Nero had already taken the toga virilis and was out there like doing speeches and stuff britannicus was still legally and in the eyes of roman society a child i mean if nero was becoming the emperor at 16 then presumably britannicus was like 12 well in 58 ce he started a relationship with a woman called Poppaea sabina she was already married to a man called otho so nero sends him away to be the governor of lusitania which is a province in sort of like portugal spain okay yeah yeah Tacitus tells us that Agrippina was appalled by this and she tried to seduce him to regain her power over him. Oh, I see. This is where that part comes in. Yeah. This is why we've been warned in. I mean, I guess Agrippina did marry her uncle. Nero isn't about that. <laughs> <laughs> Nero doesn't want to be seduced by his mother. Um, well, yeah. you know, scholars debate that. Um, anyway. <laughs> Despite whatever efforts she did make, whether trying to seduce her son was one of them, and it probably wasn't it seems Um, unlikely but like who knows she does fully lose her hold over nero and nero decides that he's gonna have to kill her oh okay that escalated quickly yeah there's a number of attempts to try and kind of make this look like it just happened kind of by accident so apparently he tries to poison her a bunch of times but she just habitually takes so many antidotes that they can't do it (laughs) then he invites her to his villa and pretends that he's like going to kind of like make up their relationship and then he sends her back home drunk really late at night on a ship that they have rigged up to sink and so the ship sinks and she's supposed to drown and they can all pretend it's very sad but she manages to swim away to safety oh okay and at that point Nero's just like all right you know what whatever and sends a guy to stab her to death and (laughs) she is stabbed to death I like the way he imagined that if she went to his house for dinner as though, like, for the first time in a while, presumably, and then going home on a ship, the ship sunk and she drowned. People wouldn't be like, that seems like an elaborate assassination plot there. Yeah, I mean, I think that if she had also died from poisoning, they probably would have been like, that seems like an assassination plot there. <laughs> but I, I think the idea is more, like, plausible deniability yeah. rather yeah. than just the emperor stabbed his mother to death. Yeah, like, yeah. there's not some dude holding a bag of money being like, yeah, I did stab her. Here's the money he gave me. <laughs> Apparently, when the assassin came to her, she wouldn't believe it at first, and then she entreated him to stab her in the womb. That's and dramatic. He stabbed and... her, and she's dead. The fact that she wouldn't believe it at first, when, like, did she think that shit really just fell apart by accident? I was like, why is she having a conversation with the assassin? Because biographers like to make up dramatic lessons. <laughs> yeah, for drama. Yeah. 
The murder of his mother is seen as a turning point for Nero, and from this point on he orders a lot more executions. His tutor Seneca is pressured into killing himself. His wife Octavia is exiled and then executed. After he exiles and then has Octavia killed, Nero marries Poppaea Sabina, but she also dies not long after that. Suetonius tells us the reason is that he kicked her to death while she was pregnant in a fit of anger. This is disputed, but that's what he says. Okay. To back up a second Mm -hmm. about his exile and execution of Octavia, Mm -hmm. what is the problem with Octavia? Like, what does he have to gain there? He doesn't like her. Oh, that's just literally it. Yeah, it was an arranged marriage when he was in his early teens, and he doesn't like her. He has a new girlfriend now. He's got a new okay. Yeah. Okay, I imagine there would be some like political reason. Like, I can see why he'd get rid of his mother and Seneca, because they were kind of puppeteering him. But so I- he exiles her, and he sort of claims that, like, well, she's barren, so she's not a fit wife for me. And whatnot. And the public is very, very upset about this. Octavia is quite popular. And so I think that kind of like drags on for a while and they're sort of saying, like, recall her and whatnot, and then puts an end to it by having her killed. Okay. I and can't I think imagine the public loved that. Either. No, they didn't. The public has become increasingly not into Nero. Understandable. <laughs> Although the biographers will tell you that the public kind of hated Nero, but there's enough in what they write that it's clear that part of the public remains fairly in favour of Nero until his death. Okay. Yeah, so that's interesting. Part of the reason for that is perhaps that Nero is disinterested in a lot of the stuff that he's supposed to be interested in as an upper-class Roman man, so he's not really into, like, war and public rhetoric and things like that. There are some fairly significant military events that happen during his reign. Perhaps most interestingly is Boudicca's Rebellion. Oh, okay, But that we're was not going to talk about them at all because Nero doesn't really have anything to do with them. Okay. Instead, Nero is really, really into the arts, and he studied music and poetry and painting. He's also passionate about athletics and chariot racing and things like that. To some degree, these are normal interests for upper-class Roman men, but his interest in them goes so far beyond what is considered socially acceptable by the upper classes. So it's socially acceptable to, like, kind of like music, but it's not socially acceptable to, like, where's too far? Well, if it's all right to go to the theatre, but it's not okay to talk to actors... Ah, okay. It's certainly not okay to want to be in the plays. Yeah, okay. So Nero did want to be in the plays. He would compete publicly in these fields. He's particularly fond of the lyre, and he composed a bunch of poems to sing in the lyre. Okay. Uh, And he entered a bunch of competitions playing the lyre. Of course, he won every (laughs) single time. As soon as he said that, I was like, can you imagine giving, like, second place to Nero? Like, no, No, that's not how the world is. There is a case when he's in Greece, I believe, and he's in a chariot race, and he falls out of the chariot, but they still give him first place. You know, obviously he's destroying any kind of integrity of these competitions. (laughs) And this is seen as, like, a debasement of his status yeah okay yeah in a way that makes the rest of the roman upper class very angry yeah. there's a lot of surely false stories about how like he would put on these 12 hour long performances and people would like fake their own deaths to get out of them and women would give birth in them and things like that i mean from what you've said i believe a certain level of putting on incredibly boring performances and people faking sick so it didn't look bad when yeah they didn't show up. being like mm-hmm. oh i'm going to faint i need some fresh air is realistic but like Pretending to die. Is a bit... yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, what are you going to do the next morning with that act? I guess? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I got better. 
So although the Roman upper class hated this, some scholars think that this actually made him quite popular with the lower classes. Oh, yeah. You know, this is something that an emperor doesn't normally do. Yeah. Um, and he's sort of connecting with the general public in a way that no other Roman upper class people are really interested in doing. So people who normally, like, do chariot racing or do theatre, is that just their, like, day job? Are they slaves? Are they... What kind of people? They're often slaves, not always slaves. Some of them would be freedmen. But the, it is a lower class thing. Yeah. yeah. So all okay. of these things are done by the lower classes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. At um, the same time, they can be very famous. Like, they can be celebrities, but they're also very low class and it's not a respectable job. So yeah, it's yeah. kind of a It's weird... like this thing where you could be really, really invested in them, but, like, you would never speak to them. You know, you yeah. don't want to be seen as socialising with them. Yeah. And it is a common thing that biographers like Tacitus or Suetonius or whoever will use to smear upper-class Roman men by saying, like, they associated with actors. Oh, uh, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. The most famous story about Nero, as you alluded to, concerns the Great Fire of 64 CE. It began because Rome was a fire trap of narrow roads and wooden buildings that were all kind of built onto each other, and that went about as well as you would expect it to. Nero responded fairly well to it, actually. He opened temporary housing for those who'd been made homeless, and he opened up food supplies. He took measures to prevent looting. However, despite this, the fire burned for over a week, and it caused huge damage there were parts of rome that were entirely destroyed more than half of it was affected after he put in place a rebuilding scheme that in part helped to prevent the original problems but also in part was just kind of about building himself a massive palace (laughs) (laughs) okay and partly because of this obvious benefiting of him there were people who said that he had been the one to set the fire in response he blamed the christians who were at that time a small nascent cult that was distrusted by roman society and therefore was a very convenient scapegoat and he executed a whole bunch of them afterwards it was said that Nero played the lyre while Rome burned, that's become played the fiddle while Rome burned, you know, dressed up in stage costumes, singing songs about the sack of Troy. Um, okay. <laughs> but realistically then, Nero burnt Rome himself is a bit of a 9-11 was an inside job conspiracy. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to think of a, like, Roman equivalent of Jeff Hall doesn't know what to do, but I can't. <laughs> um, the accounts that historians give us of this is, like, quite contradictory and also it's really not clear how this story is meant to have come down to us like who witnessed this or anything like that and it's generally regarded as being made up of public opinion of Nero had obviously turned at this point and Mm -hmm. there was a lot of dislike floating around various plots against him were discovered and Nero responded to those with extreme violence causing a downward spiral where the more people you brutally execute the more people don't like you and want to rebel against you and the more people you have to brutally execute and yep. so on and so forth until someone kills you. Ah, <laughs> like, uh, yes, yeah. He's not the only Roman emperor to go into this spiral. The governor of Gallia Lugdunensis, so part of, like, France. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it doesn't matter. All right. A man called Gaius Julius Windex revolts. Just don't react to that. I'm sorry, it's too late. <laughs> I reacted to <laughs> And he joins forces with Servius Sulpicius Galba and support for Galba as the emperor rises. Who was Galba? Have I heard of him before? He's a guy. He's a a governor of another province. Okay. He's just a dude. (laughs) Okay. He has, like, more of a claim in terms of being, like, more high status and so forth than Windex, who I believe was 
of like a Gallic background. Yeah, and I thought oh, he was okay. never going yeah. to be able to be the emperor. Yeah. So he couldn't be like, hey, what if I was the emperor? He had to be like, what if this guy was emperor who's like a proper Roman? Nero wakes up one night in June of 68 to find himself abandoned by his guard and his household. He fled to one of his freedmen's villa, accompanied by four of his freedmen. While he's there, he sort of just panics for a while, you going would. back and forth on what exactly it was he was meant to do. He has his companions dig his grave. Okay. <laughs> yep. At some point in all of this, he utters the phrase that is said to be his last words, qualis artifex pere, which is generally translated as what an artist dies in me. <laughs> Um, That's so over the top. The scholar Champlin, whose book on Nero I read for this podcast, gives an alternative translation, which is what an artisan I die, with the sense of kind of being like, you know, I lived my life as a great artist, but what a like meager craftsman I've been reduced to and kind of like scrabbling this grave at my death, which Mm. I think is interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are two very different meanings. Yeah. I mean, if we have a word that can be translated both as artist and artisan, then I find it hard to believe that Nero would be using it to say how he had been brought low from artist to artisan. That's a fair point, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, in the early hours of the morning, after some time trying to steal himself to do so, with the help of one of his freedmen, he kills himself. By this point, he is aged 30. So people kind of barge in to kidnap him and he's dying. Mm-hmm. And they are unable to save his life and he passes away. The Senate throws its lot behind Galba and the tumultuous year of the four emperors begins. The year of the four emperors is a year in which there are four emperors because everyone's killing each other to be the emperor. Okay. Yeah. So Galba doesn't last very long. Oh, God, no. <laughs> okay. So we will catch back up with those four emperors towards the end of this podcast but having got Nero's life over with let's talk about what we're really here for <laughs> I was going to ask I was going to be like I didn't see anything queer in that whole no, biography yeah that's None it let's that go home was, yeah we'll delete this recording now there are some queer things in his biography as you all have gotten the idea of it's quite difficult to discern the truth about many aspects of his life and what he liked to do sexually is obviously something that people are going to speculate and spread a lot of rumors about when they're trying to smear him after his death so to give you a bit of an idea of the kind of things that get said here's a quote from suetonius not satisfied with seducing freeborn boys and married women nero raped the vestal virgin rubria he nearly contrived to marry the freedwoman Acti by persuading some friends of consular rank to swear falsely that she came of royal stock. The passion he felt for his mother Agrippina was notorious, but her enemies would not let him consummate it, fearing that if he did, she would become even more powerful and ruthless than hitherto. I obviously didn't translate this because it has hitherto. Like, <laughs> whatever, it's fine. It's fine, it's fine. So he found a new mistress who was said to be her exact image. Some say that he did in fact commit incest with Agrippina every time they rode in the same litter, the state of his clothes when he emerged proved it. I can't believe that they were imagining that just like every time they rode in a carriage together, they had wild sex until they got to their destination. Isn't a litter the one where other people are carrying you? Yes. Yeah, they're not yeah, even in true. a carriage. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. So obviously modern scholars don't believe that parts of that were true. Yeah, I don't believe every time they were in a litter they had sex. You are a modern scholar. It's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We do know for certain that he had multiple female partners throughout his life. So obviously he married Octavia. As mentioned in that quote from Suetonius, he had a very passionate 
love or lust for the freed woman Acti and although he couldn't marry her because of her social status he kind of raised her up as high as he possibly could yeah given that he then married Popea Sabina and after Popea died he married a third woman Statilia Messalina who survived him I'm going to ask a stupid question related Mm -hmm. to nothing how do you spell Popea's name P-O-P-P-A-E-A okay not at all like the fruit Papaya. Not papaya. <laughs> All right, carry on. <laughs> carry on. Although there are fairly standard comments that are made, like the ones above about how he like seduced men's wives and stuff like that, they're all pretty generic and half-hearted. There's not a lot of stories about that. And mm. he doesn't have a huge reputation for womanizing like some of the emperors did. So that's still not gay. No, no. <laughs> Would you like something gay? Yes. How long have been here? In 64 CE, Nero married his freedman Pythagoras. pretty gay yeah (laughs) okay (laughs) both Tacitus and Cassius Dio tell us how a days long debaucherous party was held in Rome throwing the city into an orgy of sex and violence you can imagine it for yourselves (laughs) when you say an orgy of violence do you mean just like games like gladiatorial games and stuff to celebrate no i mean general people going nuts and they're being like riding just like a crazy drunken party yeah just like a nuts drunken party but like with the amount of money that the emperor has so like way more nuts than other people could summon than any drunken party i will ever go to yeah you'd be glad for that yeah i don't want this yeah the culmination of this was nero apparently marrying his freedman pythagoras with all the usual rituals of a wedding and with nero playing the role of the bride okay so in Tacitus's own words, after a few days, he took one of that herd of perverts, his name was Pythagoras, in the fashion of a solemn espousal to be his husband. There was placed on the commander a bridal veil, the officials were admitted, there was a dowry, marriage bed, and wedding torches. Suetonius gives us a slightly different story. He calls Pythagoras Doriflorus and tells us a sort of similar story about him being married to this man as the bride including the detail that he went so far as to, quote, imitate the cries and lamentations of maidens being deflowered. Imitate them. Imitate them as opposed to actually make these cries? Yeah, imitate them. Okay. Like, okay. What she's saying is, are you sure they didn't just have gay sex? Well, and I that's think the why thing he is made that the noises? I'm not quite sure if the implication is meant to be that they're kind of like putting on a bit of a performance and they're not actually having sex, or that the implication is meant to be that they're having sex. But, like, I think that there's a difference between, like, a man being penetrated and crying out in discomfort and a man crying out whilst being penetrated and specifically imitating a woman. I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. Like, I imagine falsetto is meant to be engaged (laughs) here. Before we get into that, it's generally accepted that Suetonius is mistaken and that these stories refer to the same man and that this only happened once. Generally Mm. just because if he was doing this habitually, someone would have mentioned that. Yeah, and... yeah. It wouldn't be like one time he married his freedman. There would be people being like, you know how Nero kept marrying dudes as the wife? Yeah. So when he had this whole drunken party and it's like at the peak of the drunken party, this wedding happens. Yeah. The whole party was about this wedding though. Mm. Or was it just like he had this whole event and in the middle of it? Was this like, like a Vegas wedding? Look, yeah. <laughs> so the thing about this and the thing that we're going to continue to come across here is that the Roman sources are very sparse. It's not like, it doesn't answer a lot of the questions that we have, basically. You have to kind of try and infer what's going on. And for a lot of things like, for example, the Great Fire of 64 and Nero's involvement, 
there are decades, if not centuries, of scholars discussing that and trying to puzzle out little bits of meaning. Mm. With things like Pythagoras, there's not as much scholarship there. There seems to be this sort of thing where people are just kind of like, well, that's crazy, and then don't dwell on it and don't dissect it too much. So we're going to have a lot of questions about this, and for some of it, I'm just like, I don't know. (laughs) For that question you just asked, the fact that it mentioned, like, there was a dowry and all that kind of stuff, like, that sounds like a planned wedding. I mean, I know Nero is a very rich man, so I guess he can just be like, oh, yeah, have have a bunch of money. That's my dowry. Let's get married. Yeah. But it does... They do kind of talk about it as though, like, wedding torches, dowry, marriage bed, it was all kind of a prepared wedding. But, you know, I am speculating. Mm. You know, before we fully puzzle that out to just throw more stuff at you guys, (laughs) um, one of the only other mentions of Pythagoras in a sort of, like, sexual context regarding Nero is Suetonius' account of Nero playing a game with, well, who Suetonius calls Dorotorus, but we're going to assume as Pythagoras, where he, quote-unquote, attacked the genitals of men and women bound to stakes whilst he was dressed as an animal. What? Uh, <laughs> and then he was finished off by his husband. So the verb finished off is conficere, which means both to kill and to exhaust and can connote reaching orgasm. Okay. So... <laughs> I'm thinking I need you to lay this out for me again, frankly. <laughs> Please explain okay. the weird sex game. So time. the weird sex game is essentially that there's a bunch of men and women kind of like tied up and they're essentially acting out a sort of like gladiatorial, you know, yeah. execution by a beast sort of thing. But in a sex Nero, way. But in a sex way. When Nero dressed up as an animal <laughs> yeah. will quote unquote attack their genitals, but the implication there is like clearly... Yeah, sexual. sex. Yeah. Then he's not actually, like, maiming these people or anyway. To be clear, there's not really any implication of that. And then after he's kind of, like, got himself into a bit of a frenzy, his husband plays the role of the guy who comes in and kills the beast, by which he means ah, brings yes. Nero to orgasm. And then the game's over. Okay. <laughs> which, like, honestly, as games go, sounds fine. <laughs> like, as Roman sex things, that was fine. There's not <laughs> yeah. a clear point system, but that's all right. <laughs> We can work on game design. No, we should not work on it. <laughs> we can, like, on paper, develop the game design and then file that paper and close the file yeah. and lock it. Okay. So you said that was the only other time we hear about Pythagoras in a sex context. Do we hear about Pythagoras just as, like, a figure in Nero's um, life more generally? He sometimes comes up. He doesn't... He's not really a particularly significant person. Mm-hmm. Um, apart from these stories, there's not really any mention of Pythagoras in a romantic or sexual context. So there's nothing to suggest that this is an ongoing, publicly visible relationship. Okay, yeah. Um, so he's not in any kind of high-level role that he's gained by no, being the husband like, of the No, like this isn't a real marriage, even if it was a real wedding, if you yeah, know what I mean. Yeah, okay, I understand. And also there's the whole question of, like, especially regarding the Beast game, did this happen? Like, the the wedding is very public. The Beast game seems to have surely been private. Yeah. And the Beast game also sounds like it's sort of specifically designed to describe Nero doing everything that Romans, Romans consider unacceptable. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Um, and it also ties in with those kind of negative things they say about Nero, of like performing publicly on stage mm-hmm, and kind mm-hmm. of being involved with kind of gladiatorial and those kind of things in that way. So yeah. The reason why it's interesting, as you've alluded to there is that for most of the stories about his sexuality Nero might be morally objectionable to the Romans but he's still the aggressor you know and therefore he is still playing an acceptable role for a Roman man but not so with Pythagoras 
Yeah. 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 Unsurprisingly, therefore, this relationship is very much framed as an example of Nero's depravity. Suetonius is the most explicit about this. He couches it in this, like, long list of his supposed sexual transgressions that I mm-hmm. quoted a bit of at the start oh, yeah, yeah. of this section. You know, so, like, abusing freeborn boys, raping a vestal virgin, and so forth. And then this comes at the end of that, yeah, suggesting okay. that this is the final piece of evidence, the culmination of why Nero is a depraved sex maniac. The fact that that fairly harmless sex book, game, yeah, <laughs> weird sex game, is the culmination and not the part where he supposedly had sex with his mother in the litter literally every time they went anywhere. <laughs> I mean, I'm just bit... bizarre. Yeah, well, I mean, it fits into what we've said yeah. about what Roman sexual mores yeah. and attitudes to masculinity were, where you can do all kinds of stuff before you allow yourself to be passive and therefore to the Romans feminine in a sexual setting Mm. Mm. it is always just also interesting to me that a situation where a bunch of people are like tied up and Nero is doing all the work here frankly dressed as an animal (laughs) is still seen as passive that's true yeah I did think that when you said in all the other situations except this one he's acting as the aggressor and I was thinking in this one he's dressed as an animal and the verb was attack yeah it it is really interesting (laughs) as well though like normally performing oral sex is seen as you being the passive partner, Mm. you being penetrated. And it's also seen as something that degrades a man. But here, whoever made this story up has Nero subvert these norms and he's the aggressor whilst being on performing oral sex, which is quite interesting, even if this is a crazy nonsense story. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you have to wonder why if they wanted to show Nero as depraved, they made that choice, as opposed to, say, having Nero tied to the post. Well, oh wait, no. Then someone would be performing oral sex on Nero, as opposed to like any other situation where Nero like more conventionally acted out Roman feminine sexuality. Yeah, like there's lots of situations you could put Nero in where he is being penetrated that don't involve him dressing as an animal and attacking people. (laughs) (laughs) And like, if they came up with this, why did they come up with this one? And if they didn't come up with this, I guess it is interesting that Nero was subverting norms in this way. But I'm pretty inclined to believe this story is fake. What yeah. are they trying to say about Nero? Pythagoras is not the only same-sex marriage that Nero had. Playing Never Have I Ever with Nero would have been wild. Maybe that was how the party started before he married Pythagoras at the end. True. In 66 to 67-ish CE, while he was in Greece, Nero castrated and married the boy Sporus. Okay. Suetonius tells us that he, quote, castrated the boy Sporus and actually tried to make a woman of him. And he married him with all the usual ceremonies, including a dowry and a bridal veil, took him to his house attended by a great throng, and treated him as his wife. So before we go any further, I guess now we need to talk about pronouns. For the first time ever in Queerest Facts history of talking about potentially gender non-conforming people, we're going to use the pronouns that correlate with the gender they were assigned at birth. Okay. So we don't really know a lot about Sporus. He's basically portrayed by both modern scholars and ancient sources as a fundamentally silent figure whose point of view is irrelevant. The tradition is that he's from a slave background, and this is something that Nero does to him. I mean, I have to say in that case that both modern and ancient scholars are very much casting him in the woman role here <laughs> as a silent figure whose position is irrelevant. Yeah. Has their marriage done to them? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I th- yeah. how else could they cast him? Like, honestly, it depends to some extent what they know, but anything where they give him any kind of opinion 
agency any action i guess yeah i mean i guess if ancient sources haven't given us this then we can't really apply it yeah in a modern sense without it just being speculation yeah but i guess we can note the absence we can note that that's part of the story is that sporus has no agency yeah and like it's theoretically possible that both the marriage and the castration were not only consensual but desired but given that neri is the emperor and this is a random either slave or freedman, as we'll discuss, that Nero meets, it is unlikely that there is no element of coercion present here. Yeah, absolutely, Mm. yeah. Mm. Therefore, I think it's most likely that Sporus was probably just a cisgender boy who was used as a sexual object, and I'm going to use human pronouns. Yeah, I mean, I don't see that we have any reason to believe Sporus actively desired any of this to happen to him. So it's not just a matter of castration. Sporus comes to Rome and to some degree plays a kind of empress role publicly thereafter. Oh, what? Okay. A noblewoman, Calvina Crispinilla, is made his guardian and wardrobe attendant. He's referred to as lady, queen, and mistress and dressed as the empress. I don't know how often, but he does accompany Nero in public multiple times in his litter with Nero reaching over to kiss him. So unlike with Pythagoras, this is them, like, married now. Yeah, so unlike Pythagoras, they're married. Yeah, I mean, the obvious difference is that Nero can much more publicly be acceptably married if Nero is the man in that marriage. Yeah. Dio of Prusa, who is another ancient source on Nero, describes Sporus saying, he actually wore his hair parted, young women attended him wherever he went for a walk, he wore women's clothes and was forced to do everything else a woman does in the same way. And to cap the climax, great honours and boundless sums of money were actually offered to anyone who could make a woman of him. What do they mean when they say could make a woman of him? So the general way that is read by scholars is that Nero is saying, hey, does anyone want to surgically create a vagina for my boyfriend? Okay. Which is a pretty interesting thing to have the Romans like conceptualise, even if Nero didn't say this or want this done. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Suetonius includes this in the long list of Nero's sexual depravities that I've mentioned at some length now. Mm-hmm. Cassius Dio actually gives us a reason for why Nero did this, and he gives the reason that Sporus looked like Poppea, saying, Nero missed her so greatly after her death that on learning of a woman who resembled her, he at first sent for her and kept her, but later he caused a boy of the freedmen, whom he used to call Sporus, to be castrated, since he too resembled Sabina, and he used him in every way like a wife. I see. Okay. I see how this is like a narrow sexual depravity story. Mm. Um, yeah. It is worth noting that um, Suetonius and Tacitus do not give this reason, and they're right mm-hmm. earlier. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's quite likely that Cassius Dio was just like, I need an explanation for this. Like, what's going on? And I guess, like, mutilated someone and forced them to act as his dead wife is kind <laughs> of, it fits in that. It fits with all his depravity. Yeah. Mm. Both ancient and modern scholars view this as being a very shocking thing to have done. That's fair. True. Nevertheless, modern scholars, as I sort of mentioned when we're talking about Pythagoras, aren't overly interested in analysing what is actually going on here. I found I had this very frustrating experience trying to research this where I would like grab a book about Nero and I would look up Sporus and there would be one reference to Sporus. The biographer of Nero, Miriam Griffin the Cambridge companion to the Age of Nero, both mention Sporus only once in reference to Poppea Sabina, essentially not really saying anything about Sporus at all, but just making the point that like Nero had this unhealthy fixation with Poppea Sabina, basically. 
And I found this really frustrating. I had to look pretty hard to find a biographer who was willing to go on for like four pages about Sporus. Part of this is because we have very few remarks about Sporus. Yeah. Like I've kind of told you most of them. But obviously people are quite happy to endlessly speculate about what's going on with like any other random detail. I mean, they've mm. been endlessly speculating about the mother incest part for a while. But... Well, I, I don't know actually, because I think that's something that similarly people might mention but it's not something that is like analyzed as someone who didn't study the ancient world at all that's definitely something that we or i know about nero that's something i hear about nero that gets discussed Um, it's mm. like so nero's relationship with agrippina is analyzed a lot because agrippina is a significant political figure from this time and the person who made nero the emperor and so forth and there's a lot of stuff about her. She gets talked about a lot of in her own right and then in relation to Nero. But, like, the stuff specifically about her and Nero as a potential thing is treated in more depth than this, but it's not, like, in my experience, something that the scholarship is going on about and people are writing papers about and stuff. Okay. Like, I think it's kind of similarly something that people are kind of willing to be like, so that's a shocking story. Unlikely. Moving Let's on. kind of move on. Yeah. Mm. I guess if you're talking from the perspective of like what's the general public view of Nero rather than what's the scholarly view of Nero, the general public is usually in that boat of like, we want the scandalous details. If someone once said he slept with his mother, like that's what we're going to talk about. Do you think in that same boat, Sporus would... In that boat that you engineered to sit <laughs> so you yeah. could drown your mother. <laughs> yeah, that one. You think Sporus would fit into that? We're looking for some scandal, you know. If what you want to hear is about how narrow is depraved, then mm. fiddled while Rome burned, sure, that's appealing. Slept with his mother, that's appealing. You'd think this would be appealing too? I think part of that is that images of the Roman emperors are often created by the sort of like sword and sandal movies. Yeah. That depict, you know, Caligula's giant orgies or whatever. Mm. And they're not likely to want to portray queer things. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it also has the problem there of just being more complicated. Like, it takes you more than a sentence to explain what's going on here. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, Nero slept with his mother. Great. Everyone knows what that means. We've got it done. Like, Nero castrated a boy to make him act in the role of his dead wife. Um. <laughs> yeah, like that just kind of raises questions. People aren't like, that's so depraved. People are like, what are you talking about? I think that the scholar Champlin, who I've mentioned before, hits on part of the reason why we don't talk about it in the scholarship when he says that the apparently pederastic relationship with Sporus is unsatisfactory and that it fits no norms. He later goes on to say, the Sporus affair is universally condemned as an abomination, one of the eternally infamous incidents in a life that set new standards in debauchery and once condemned it is passed over. People just kind of don't know what to make of it. So they're just mm. kind of like, oh, that doesn't seem great. And then awkwardly silent. And yeah. they're like, anyway, so regarding his taxation policy. <laughs> I think also the thing is that like scholars treat it as just like a depraved sexual thing. And therefore don't think that it necessarily has a lot to say. They're just mm. like, it's just a depraved story. And therefore it's not really worthy of analysis. And I think that, you know, we can get into some interesting stuff about what on earth the Romans think is going on with sex and gender. First of all, it probably does fit into a context. It's just not a context people have really bothered to try and construct very much. And second of all, it probably is worth talking about. So first of all, I wanted to kind of try and like clarify a few details or at least mention a few details we don't have and try and ask questions about them that we can't answer. Mm. Okay. (laughs) That is how the answer is. So first of all, I think it's worth being explicit about what exactly the problem is here. Like, it's all very well and good to be like, yeah, that does seem shocking, sure. 
But I think it's worth asking, well, what exactly is shocking and why? It can't be that he's in a relationship with a boy. And I say this because I I do think that a lot of Roman historians, not Mm. like ancient Roman historians, but modern historians of ancient Rome, will kind of imply that any kind of homosexuality was a problem for the Romans by mentioning things like that, being like, obviously that's appalling, and then not explaining explaining more. So Nero being sexually interested in pretty boys is fine. It's not even necessarily a problem that he was castrated. This isn't the only instance of a pretty young man being castrated to preserve his looks that we have and they're not always condemned yeah like we had the whole castrating people for their voice situation which went on for a long time yeah but yeah specifically yeah. i believe like the poems of marshall mention this happening mm-hmm. um, the emperor domitian has a relationship with a eunuch that's fine so the problem seems to have been first of all the fact that this random boy has been raised up to being a part of the imperial household yeah And I suppose also the gender transgression, given how Cassius Dio and so forth are stressing and actually tried to turn him into a woman so much. Yeah. It's interesting, though, with regard to mentioning that, like, castration to preserve the looks of an attractive young boy was not normal, but not, you know, unheard of. And when you read about, like, Romans finding young boys attractive or even trying to kind of preserve that attractiveness. It's the androgyny that they often talk about, the fact that they're not, like, hyper-masculine or very masculine, you know. They haven't necessarily fully gone through puberty yet. I don't know exactly how old Sporus was. So it's interesting that the gender transgression would possibly be the shocking part if the androgyny and not-so-strongly-gendered nature of a boy in this scenario is what appealed to the Romans. Hmm. I mean, Romans definitely do view boys as kind of like inherently somewhat compromised in terms of masculinity because Mm. they're not fully masculine yet. But like, I think that's something they find both appealing and are very, very deeply anxious about. Yeah, yeah, no, I guess that's true, yeah. And also like, obviously, if that's an anxiety that exists, this story exploits that to its full potential in that Sporus is like living as a woman now. And, like, even though Sporus hasn't been made fully a woman, as they say, they've raised that possibility and, like, they've raised the fact that this could occur. Like, that's a part of the story, even if it hasn't actually happened, and that feeds into that anxiety as well, I guess, that not only is he living as a woman, but he could physically transition, I guess you could say. My question here, though, that remains is, you said that's something they're anxious about. I don't really follow. What are they... Afraid of? What What causes the anxiety here? I mean, I, I guess the difference here is between, like, slave boys, boys from other places are compromised in their masculinity, and that's something they're okay with exploiting. Mm. But, like, a Roman boy, they see that same potential, and they're very anxious about preventing that from happening. Oh, yeah, like, I understand. So there's, like, a lot of laws against having any kind of sexual relationship with a Roman boy because... Then you'd be screwing up his masculinity, which is the worst thing in the world. Obviously, they're not like concerned for Sporus. None of these Romans particularly seem to care about Sporus at all. Yeah. But I think that even though he's not like a young Roman man of the upper classes, taking a boy and so like thoroughly feminizing him is still something that the Romans would freak out about. Yeah, okay, no, I understand. I think it's kind of about like if you could do this to, although they're viewed somewhat differently by Romans, if you could do this to a non Roman boy, Hypothetically, you could do this to a Roman boy. Every Roman man was once a Roman boy, so that kind of calls into question the immutability of their masculinity. Yes. 
Yeah, okay, yeah. I also wanted to talk a little bit about exactly what Sporus's background is. So it's not really clear if Sporus was a slave or if he had been freed. Some sources, so Suetonius for example, just do not make this clear at all either way. Cassius Dio insinuates that he had been freed by the time he was castrated, which just sort of raises further questions. So a freedman would generally be a Roman citizen and therefore protected from genital mutilation as the Romans saw this. That doesn't mean that Nero as the emperor wouldn't just sort of do it anyway, but it does make it that much more transgressive and it sort of raises a question. Suetonius calls him a boy. We don't know his age more specifically. No one's like this 15 year old or anything like that, but it makes sense that he would be in sort of the early years of puberty given that castration of boys or young men is generally to preserve their youthful looks and if they've been through puberty fully that's not really worth doing i guess do anything it is highly unusual for a boy who was a slave to have been freed it's not really exactly clear who sporus is and where he's come from which does not help the already confusing nature of the situation yeah i mean i guess my thought when you said it's highly unusual that a boy who was a slave would have been free when he's only a teen Mm. is to kind of assume that he would have been Nero's slave who he freed before going through this whole weird process. I mean, I don't have any explanation for why Nero have done that, but it would still put him in the position of having been Nero's slave, which is not that dissimilar a position. Obviously, you've mentioned legal differences, but it's not that dissimilar a position when we're talking about the Roman emperor to being Nero's slave. Yeah. Like, either way, whatever his actual role is, it's very clear that he's someone who Nero has, like, absolute power over what happens to him. Like, this is a, a bizarre and, like, shocking story. Sure. But it's not really a queer story, is it? Explain more. Like, as far as we can tell, this has happened to this boy against his will. It's not any kind of expression of gender nonconformity or anything mm. like that. As far as Nero is concerned, Nero would like this boy to be a woman. So it's not really a queer story on Nero's part either. And also having a relationship with a slave boy is, like, fine. Like, marrying them is not the norm, but... Having a relationship with them is fine in Roman times. It's not transgressive. In... I don't mean it's not a queer story from a Roman point of view. I mean, mm-hmm. is that a queer story to us? Like, not really. <laughs> I mean, I think that, like, we'll sort of get into some more stuff about, like, what's going on here and how people talk about it and so forth. But I think that, like, given that the general set of the scholarship is that, like, sex and gender transgression in any kind of, like, real binary-shaking way didn't happen in ancient Rome... Okay. I think that this is worth talking about just to problematize that. Yeah, okay, no, I understand what you're saying. It's worth talking about just to point out that Romans had some concept that those were boundaries that could be crossed. Mm. I have been historically ambivalent on this podcast with kind of being like really setting down any criteria about like what counts as queer or not. Um, yeah. I, I agree that like from what we can see, like I'm certainly not asserting that Sporus was a trans woman. Yeah, or anything yeah. like that. But I still think that, like, at the point at which a Roman emperor is taking someone assigned male at birth and socially and potentially attempting to physically turn them into a woman, like, that's of interest to me as someone who wants to talk about, like, transgender dynamics in Asian history. Like, I think that kind of speaks for itself. Mm, it does, yeah. it does. You're right. I'm, like... Like, I, I get where you're no, coming no. from. You've 100% answered my question in that I kind of looked at that as 
you know, was that a queer story to either of the participants? Not really. But does it say something about, like, understandings of gender in Rome? Does it say something about that? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's a queer story about society rather than about the individuals in the story. I also wanted to point out that the name Sporus is the word for seed and therefore semen in ancient Greek. And Cassius Dio at least insinuates that Nero himself named Sporus that, basically as a joke. Okay. I'm castrating you, so I'm calling you this. Every time you said it, I imagined sporin, which is that like little pocket you put on the front of your kilt. Oh, okay. I don't know whether those are related at all. (laughs) Probably Um, not. I, yeah, I, I cannot say. It is interesting to me that, like, if this is what's happened, then the situation seems to be that Nero found this boy, renamed him Sporus from whatever he was named before, whether that was even his, like, name from birth or that was something he'd already been renamed as a slave or whatever, Yeah. as a joke, castrated him, and then kind of renamed him Sabina. <laughs> what's going on? I don't know. I don't really have anywhere to go with that. I just think it's this kind of, like, basic logistical questions that aren't really being explored in scholarship in a way that frustrates me. And that also goes for the fact that, like, people mention this, but... I have so many unanswered questions about what daily life was like for these people. Like, were they in a relationship when they weren't out in public? What was that like? What did Messalina, who was Nero's wife by this point, think about this? Yeah, good question. You know, Champlin notes that Nero doesn't really seem to care about Sporus, but only about Sabina, who he's, like, projecting onto Sporus. Is that the case? From Cassius Dio, which you indicated a readiness to dismiss, and I sympathise with that, but it's no faker than any other statement <laughs> yeah, we enough. have, so we kind of have to consider it. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Like, if- we can't just say everything Cassius Dio says is fake because it's not in Tacitus and Stone. Yes. I mean, I guess there is kind of a temptation with this kind of material to dismiss sources that don't make sense to us because we're like, that Mm -hmm. doesn't fit into the picture that we've got. Yeah. And we could be doing a disservice to our own history there. Mm -hmm. And it is very, very easy to just kind of like come to classics, but also to Nero specifically and be like, this is my understanding of what Nero was like, and then just build a picture. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. It's like how we're willing to entertain this possibility quite seriously, but we weren't willing to entertain for a moment the fact that he slept with his mother. Are we entertaining this seriously or are we just talking about its potential implications as a story? Um, Well, which part? Like Like, this... If you're saying this seems fake, which part are you talking about? Are you talking about the existence of Sporus at all? Or are you talking about the specific Nero did this because Sporus looked like his dead wife? I'm probably talking about the whole story. Like, is this just something else that we hear to make Nero sound depraved? You might be giving, like, too much credit to Tacitus and Suetonius' ability to make stuff up. Okay. Like, it would be really, really hard to fabricate the existence of a public figure entirely. Yeah, That's okay. bold. All right, even I know what you mean. Roman yeah. historians. And they are only a generation removed. Yeah, fair like, enough. If we made up that, like, Nixon had had a Sporus... <laughs> Obviously, history is a bit more legit now. But, like, that's the kind of thing that you're suggesting has happened here. Pythagoras, sure. But Sporus is a public figure for a number of years. Okay. No, I understand what you're saying there. I guess I'm just coming at this from a modern history perspective, where the idea that the only sources we have about this person are three secondary sources, essentially, is just bizarre. And I don't know (laughs) how to handle it. (laughs) classics. There are three things you have to read and you've covered everything we know about Nero. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, there are like 25 sources on Nero. It's just only three that like say more than like five paragraphs. More than like he existed. You have far more credence as a Roman history authority than I do. (laughs) Do you think it's possible that they just made Sporus up whole cloth? 
I think it's pretty unlikely. Like, I think your point is very valid. Like, if they were writing this after Nero's death, there would be people alive who would be like, that never happened. Or be like, oh yeah, I remember Sporus. Like, it's not far enough removed that they could have just spun this story. So it's more like they could exaggerate elements of the Sporus situation. Hmm. So can I just backtrack, like, a while? Absolutely. (laughs) Back to Sporus's name. Yeah. It's interesting if the assertion is that Nero named him Sporus as a joke about his castration, that that gives a very kind of like humorous or mocking tone to Nero's, like to Nero's own actions here and Nero's own behavior. Mm. But then if the assertion is that Sporus appeared in public as his wife and perhaps was kind of chosen because he looked like his dead wife and that they kind of had a marriage that's quite a serious tone on this attempt to feminize for us and so forth like, yeah those things don't really sit together at all mm. and i think also like the alternative to him naming spores that is that he was just happened to be called this and yeah this castrated which is also kind of like mm. yeah that's also highly unlikely is like, there maybe potential that Sporus is kind of a public nickname for this person uh, Cassius Dio does specifically say Nero used to call him Sporus. The verb that Cassius Dio has that is like Nero called him Sporus implies like not that he referred to him by this, but he gave him his name. Okay. Mm. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. Those don't gel because the like castrating this boy and feminizing him because you're that obsessed with your dead wife is a very kind of sincere and tragic tone for a story. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't fit with, and then nicknaming him Sperm. Like, unless the whole story is about mocking Nero, that tone isn't really consistent. So scholars have talked a bit about what's going on here. The standard modern assumption of the reason behind Nero's actions is just, like, he was motivated by lust and or also he was motivated by his feelings about Papaya. Yeah. So scholars kind of just, like, take that at face value. That seems pretty legit. Mm-hmm. There are exceptions. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the scholar David Woods focuses on the significance of Sporus looking like Papaya, saying that he thinks the most natural conclusion to be drawn from this is that Nero thought that the two were related. Furthermore, because Papaya's mother was one of the most beautiful women of her day, and the Emperor Tiberius had a reputation for seducing such women, maybe Nero's Papaya was a result of that affair, and that Papaya might have told him that that was the case to promote the idea that she was of imperial blood and to get him to marry her. This is one of the only arguments I could find about this. Sorry? I had to tell you it. <laughs> I can't even so, grasp what you just told basically, me. Basically. The implication is that this boy is maybe Papaya's, like, I don't know, half-brother or something. Yeah, and therefore is the Emperor Tiberius's descendant. And is that supposed to be informing Nero's actions, or is that just yeah, an explanation for why so, Sporus looks like Papaya? Well, both, obviously. The idea is that <laughs> if <laughs> so Nero believed Papaya to be Tiberius's daughter, yeah. and believed that because they looked so much alike, Sporus was her relation, then he might have believed that Sporus was of imperial blood, and therefore was a rival to the throne. And he was like, I oh, so there are two examples of Nero. Alice, come down. <laughs> yeah, this is just 
wild. I right? know. Like, it's a bad argument. It's stupid. There are two examples of Nero using sexual violence against a political opponent okay. that we won't explore because they're bad. We don't need to talk about them. It's alleged that he raped two people who were rivals to the throne. Okay. As a in way that... to, like, dominate and degrade them as political rivals. I was about to say, in that kind of way where once they've been penetrated by Nero, they're no longer plausible candidates. Yeah. So Woods concludes that his sexual relationship with Sporus is likewise a one of trying to, like, dominate and degrade a political rival, and that he castrated Sporus to stop him from begetting heirs. So, obviously that argument is terrible, and I'm so annoyed that an article that I found literally called Nero and Sporus that I gratefully clicked on was about this. <laughs> Obviously, this is a bad argument, but we'll just kind of run through some reasons why quickly, okay? <laughs> so first of all, there's the sheer improbability of what he says. It's this kind of thing of like, well, maybe because Popeye's mom was beautiful, then Tiberius might have seduced her and she might have been the I... illegitimate daughter of him and she might have known and she might have told Nero. Just maybe I didn't remember this correctly, okay. but did this happen in Greece? Is Sporus from Greece? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was I kind so. of thinking in my head, this didn't even happen in Rome. Like, <laughs> yeah. Sporus right. may have been a Roman who was in Greece, but like, yeah. that's just another we level really, of Look, we don't know anything about Sporus. Second, even if it could be proved that this was true, both Papea and Sporus would be illegitimate and Sporus would have been a slave and they would be functionally irrelevant to the imperial plot. There's just no way that Sporus mm. would ever have become the emperor. Also, if he was indeed a rival to the throne, Nero has killed rivals to the throne before. He's perfectly fine with doing that. Yeah. Yeah. If you're willing to kill your own mother, you're willing to kill a random person who just might happen to be related. Yeah. I mean, my major question there was, yeah, there are so many easier yeah. ways to do away with a candidate to the throne than be fake married to them for clearly a lengthy period of time. Um, it's, only, it's, only, like, it's only a couple of years. That That's a lengthy period. Right, okay, I just wanted to make it clear. Murder you could do in an afternoon. That's right. <laughs> Fake marriage takes a while. And like public appearances and like yeah. getting some women's clothes made for him. Like, yeah. like yeah. This, this is this is garbage. So That's... that was what an article I had to read was about. Um, <laughs> I'm, right. Sorry. Let's get so, the good one now. I I, guess. There isn't really a good one. <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of like potentially interesting articles about this that I wasn't able to get. So I'm not saying that there's, like, nothing out there of any worth to be said about Sporus. Champlin says some interesting stuff that goes some way towards trying to provide some kind of context for Sporus existing. So when they were back in Rome, Nero escorted Sporus around the Sigillaria, which is a festival where figurines are given as gifts during the last days of Saturnalia. So Saturnalia is a Roman festival during which normal social rules are suspended and reversed. It's observed in a whole variety of ways, but the most famous one, the one we tend to talk about, is that the roles between slaves and masters are subverted, so masters will, like, serve their slaves dinner and things like that. Nero was really enthusiastic about Saturnalian festivities, and this made him quite popular with the masses. And his observance of, like, Saturnalian-like behaviour extended well beyond actual Saturnalia. So because he brings Sporus back and then, like, sort of takes him to this festival and so forth, Champlain understands Sporus to basically be an extension of this sort of observance. You know, a part of Nero's interest in this reversal of roles and the upsetting of social categories and so forth. When we go back to that big party at which he apparently married Pythagoras, Champlain points out the long list of contradictions and transgressed dichotomies that are present in the descriptions of it. 
He says, exotic wild birds and beasts stock a domestic park in downtown Rome. Ocean creatures are imported into fresh water. Upper-class women are hidden inside brothels. Naked prostitutes promenade in the open air. Night is turned into day. A man appears as a woman. An emperor marries a former slave. And the intimacies of the marriage bed become a spectator sport. Yeah, okay. okay. So the contention here is that Nero just really likes subverting people's expectations and that is enough um, to motivate him to a like two year long fake marriage to a boy who's castrated like con- modern art tension <laughs> is i think that the contention is less that and more just an observance that throughout nero's life you can see these transgressed and reversed dichotomies and whether they're things that nero actually did or they're things that roman authors decided to depict nero doing because they thought that it fit the image of what Nero was like. That is very much a trend in Nero's mm. biography. We do know that he had some interest in some things that fit this bill. You know, if we go back to, like, his main interest in life, which is theatricality. Yeah, um, okay. And we look at the sort of, like, performative nature of a lot of these stories and so forth. You know, that is something that very much breaks down a fundamental divide in Roman society, this sort of class boundary. And whether or not how much of the Spora story happened, this is another set of social categories being transgressed and problematized. Yeah. And both of those examples in terms of class divides and gender divides are ones that Romans have a lot of anxiety about. If you're, I guess, making the connection here between Nero's general interest in performance mm-hmm. or like theatricality and the Sporus situation. Mm. Are you suggesting here that these authors are presenting gender as a role, like a performance? I don't know. Yeah, Suetonius was proto-butler. I'm, that was not a general <laughs> statement, please. You just looked at me and I was like, no, no, I'm, make, I'm like making fun of those people who say that the Gracchi brothers were proto Marxists. No, I understand. Okay, good. I understand. I'm laughing, don't worry. I think that the texts that exist about Nero and Sporus betray Roman authors' anxieties about gender. I think that there are times in any society where people kind of become aware of the cracks in the gender and sex binary that they've constructed and they feel tense about it because they don't want to face up to that and i think that this is one of those cases yeah yeah no that makes sense this is an expression of their awareness that gender is not necessarily inherent and that stresses them out yeah yeah, and that's about as close to a useful statement about Sporus that I have at this point. Okay, well, that's a statement. That's a statement about how Romans conceptualize gender. There are a bunch of like little snippets of information in Roman texts about things like this, and we touched on some of them in earlier episodes we've done on Roman homosexuality or on Caesar and things like that. Mm. And no one's really tried to build those into a coherent picture yet, so I don't have one to give you. Like, this is like raw scholarship. Okay, you literally heard it here first, guys. (laughs) But I think that, like, with stories like this, like, it's clear that there's stuff going on with Romans and gender that we haven't fully explored. And I think just kind of being like, well, that's crazy. That's really weird. Wow, I'm shocked. And then going on with your life is not particularly helpful. Yeah. If it is not already clear, and I hope it is, we're not regarding Sporos as, like, hey, here's a trans woman who was in ancient Rome and married the emperor. But I do still think that the way that a lot of scholars react to Sporus is indicative of trans misogyny. First of all, it's very clear that, like, 
The idea of someone assigned male at birth playing a female social role or undergoing physical feminization through, for example, the removal of the testicles is kind of something that a lot of scholars are encountering for the first time and something that they view as being fundamentally insane. Mm. Um, Champlin says that when readers first encounter the story of Sporus, usually in the pages of Suetonius, they react with a mixture of emotions, shock, disgust, perhaps even horror, but inevitably also laughter. And he didn't really make it clear exactly what it is that we're meant to kind of in a shocked way find funny. But I feel like the things that are shocking about this story are first of all, the lack of consent. And second of all, the fact that you, as these scholars basically see it, and as the ancient Romans basically had it, a man being turned into a woman. And I feel like it's the latter that people are more likely to laugh of because of how our society is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I feel like the lack of consent in this story is like, it's shocking. It's absolutely mm. shocking. But I don't imagine shocked laughter to be the response. Yeah. There. And we don't, like, there's a lot of rape stories in yeah. ancient Rome. Like, it doesn't tend to be like, naturally, you're going to laugh at this, even no. in shock. That we'll probably a... you go back and find that when you told us this, this story, we laughed too. Possibly. Maybe we did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like I think that that is a sentiment that I found a few times in scholarship mm. and I mm. found it very uncomfortable and I think that scholars would do well to kind of examine their own understanding of gender a bit. Yeah. And that's all I really wanted to say about that. We do have information about what happens to Sporus after Nero dies. When Nero flees Rome, Sporus is one of the four who goes with him. When Nero is resolving to kill himself, he turns to Sporus and begs him to lament and wail for him and to start the mourning process. Is the lamenting and wailing something generally done by women in Roman society? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interestingly, Sporus continues to sort of play the role of Sabina after Nero's death. The Praetorian prefect who helps bring about Nero's downfall, Nymphidius Sabinus, sends for Sporus after Nero's death and also treats Sporus as a wife and calls him Papea. This is when Galba is the emperor, and Galba is very quickly killed by Otho, who you may remember as being one of Papea's husbands before Nero. So he also has a relationship with Sporus, and that's sort of interesting, I guess, given the thing where Sporus apparently looks just like Papea. So he's like, hey, my wife is back? I guess that's a possible thing that you could say about that, yeah. So... As this poor boy has been, like, castrated and dragged to Rome from Greece, and he's just like, I guess I have to make a livelihood out of looking like Papaya now. I mean, the implication is very much that people are just sort of grabbing him. Not that he's being like, I guess I'll try and suck up to so-and-so. Yeah, okay. You know, you Mm. can disagree with that suggestion if you want, but I think it's still the sort of thing where, like... Sporus continues to be a kind of sex object in all these stories rather than an actor. Woods understands this to be further proof that Sporus is a secret Julia Claudian. Um, (laughs) Oh, yes. If he was, he would have been killed. He just would have been killed. Some scholars just understand this to be a matter of, like, them wanting Sporus as a reward and it as being an expression of sexual interest. I don't know, but that's an interesting thing, I guess, for scholars to say in terms of what's sexually desirable to Roman men. Yeah, I thought that too. You would think that if you were someone, as like Otho is, who is trying to gain power, that you would not want Sporus anywhere near you. Yeah. There is also the suggestion that potentially any connection to the Julio-Claudians at all was desirable anything that could suggest continuity with them so this is the Uh, first time that someone has tried to become the emperor who is not a julia claudian yeah and they really have like no grounds to be the emperor apart from like being the quickest to kill everyone else this is a terrible system of government (laughs) yes (laughs) 
And so Sporus is able to suggest continuity with Nero. I realise that neither of those explanations are truly satisfactory. Yeah. 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 What I was going to say is if there are scholars understanding that Sporus was seen as some kind of desirable sex object, it's a weird response where you've got like Champlin being like, this is frankly outrageous, this castrated boy in a dress. This is a bit funny. And then also everyone saw him as a sex object. Yeah. There's some weird disconnect I agree. there. And and I, I don't think, really know. Like, this is where I became frustrated because I think there are so obviously, like, questions that arise about yeah. what's going on here and how this person is being treated. And scholars, like, just kind of brushed over it and didn't really get into that and try and make any kind of cohesive picture. Like, I don't have one to offer you, but the complete lack of an attempt is very frustrating. Mm. Yeah. I do want to mention that, like, being treated as a sex object by Roman men is not something exclusive to women. Like, no. the fact that they're treating him as a sex object doesn't mean that they're recognizing him as a woman. Treating an attractive male slave as a sex object and kind of as a prize in a similar way fits in with Roman mm, yes. mores. I mm. understand that. I was more interested that they could see the like transgression of the gender binary as mm. still sexually desirable. Mm, mm. Yeah, and they are still treating him like I guess he's still playing a female social role. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they're still calling him Papaya, I guess. Otho himself is soon overthrown, and he kills himself in April of 69. He's succeeded by Vitellius, who isn't around for very long either, and it's during Vitellius's reign that Sporus dies. Mm-hmm. Cassius Dio tells us that Vitellius desires for Sporus to be, quote, brought onto the stage in the role of a maiden being ravished, but he would not endure the shame and committed suicide beforehand. What? And that is the last we hear of Sporus. That was an unsatisfying story from start to finish, frankly. Yeah, it I mean, really was. <laughs> I guess, like, what we get from that is that Sporus is continuing to play the same role hmm. after Nero's death. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It is interesting that Sporus finally has agency, which he has not had the mm. entire time. Like, not significant agency, like, but we see that Sporus views... We see the glimpse of an opinion on what's happening for the yeah, first yeah. time. Yeah, and it is a negative opinion. It's in... Sporus rejecting being a maid and being ravished. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, it, it doesn't give us much insight into Sporus, but it gives us a tiny bit. I mean, I guess it just kind of doubles down on the fact that Sporus was not a willing Certainly player in this not whole thing. by this point. No. Mm. No. I guess it's also worth noting that I'm not really sure what's meant to be implied by brought onto the stage in the role of a maiden being ravished. In that I'm not sure if this actually implies, like, public rape or not. Mm, yeah. Or you just, guys... like, acting out. I don't know. And they're both awful, obviously. Yeah, they're both awful. And you guys know better than me what Romans consider acceptable to do on stage. I just don't know. I don't know. But yeah, that's that. I'm okay, sorry, the scholarship right. doesn't exist. <laughs> I honestly feel like I learned interesting things about how we talk about gender in past societies, frankly. I feel like I got something valuable out of that as a scholar. I don't know about you guys. I feel like it was valuable yet ultimately unsatisfying. I guess it's the sort of thing where when we get into this stuff where we really just don't know what to say, is it worth doing it so that something is said, even if that is unsatisfying? Maybe we'll inspire another scholar. I do think that, like, not all good scholarship is proposing answers. Sometimes good scholarship is just drawing people's attention to gaps. Mm. Yeah, yeah, like starting the conversation is valuable. Yeah. With that, we've been Queer as Fat. I'm Eli. I'm Alice. And I'm Irene. If you like this episode, you can find our other episodes on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
We always say this, even though you're obviously listening to our podcast right now, so you have some idea of where to find them. <laughs> True. If you do listen to us on iTunes, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us to find a wider audience and is probably the best way you can support us without actually spending any money. If you do review us, we'll read out your review on this podcast and we're going to do that now. So first of all, we've kind of avoided this thus far by everyone giving us like five star reviews, but we do very occasionally get a like low star review and they all say the same thing. So I'm just going to kind of amalgamate them into one and we're going to react to it once and then we're not going to ever read them out again because that's not fun content. One star, your audio sucks. Response, yeah, we know we're poor. Thanks for playing. Sorry it didn't work out. Bye. <laughs> but like, in all seriousness, if you can let us know which episodes you were listening to so we know at least whether we're improving or whether changes we're trying to make make a difference. Or if you're a sound engineer and you just want to, you know, offer us some free advice. <laughs> <laughs> like, we do know. It's something we've had trouble with. Like, we don't really know of a solution that isn't committing to spending a bunch of money. And we don't really have that. And we don't know how to fix the problem enough that we're willing to, like, spend a bunch of money and then be like, oh, that didn't actually improve things, like, that amount of money or whatever. So, like, that's just kind of how this is now. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Now let's give way more airtime to people who say nice things about us in a way that does not indicate bias about what reviews I choose to read. Let's do that. This one is five stars, and so I'm much more willing to give it a time. It's by Ms. Crafty Paula, and they are from America. It's headed, I love this podcast so much. And it reads, if you fall under the LGBTQ umbrella, including pansexual and NB, and or you love history, particularly the history of sexuality and of people typically left out or edited, this podcast is for you. I learn something new in every one, and the hosts are charming and witty, while still being interested in both the human subjects of history and the concerns of accuracy. They are relevant, exciting, feminist, entertaining, funny, dramatic, and many other possible keywords I can't think of right now. <laughs> I love when people are just like, I'm going to put in keywords. <laughs> How many good adjectives can I think of? <laughs> to paraphrase what Eli often says about people on the podcast, I love them so much. <laughs> it's like, I was not aware that you often said this, but it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> neither was I. I'm, I'm still not that. over the fact that Paula thinks we're charming and witty, frankly. Yeah, neither am I. That's wild. <laughs> also, I have had many pets, mostly cats, and although I've never had a monkey, as a child I was introduced to a chimpanzee who was apparently being raised like a child as a psychological experiment. <laughs> Which, okay. That was a fun fact. Yeah, thank you for telling us that. That is wild. If and you like, were a Queer as Fact podcast topic, we would include that monkey story in Yeah, we totally would. Maybe in some future time someone will do that your podcast episode <laughs> um i really know what happened to this monkey who's being raised like a child <laughs> a hairy baby you could say no <laughs> wait maybe this is it nim chimpsky oh it's doing dishes um, yeah, Nim chimpsky was a chimpanzee and the subject of an extended study of animal language acquisition at columbia is that the monkey that you met Paula, please tell us more. Please get in touch. Thank you for reviewing us. Let us know about monkeys that you have met. This one's from Chantelle Stateside, also in America, titled Absolutely Fabulous, and it reads, I'm absolutely in love with this podcast. I found it a couple months ago looking for information on Anne Lister. Thank you so much for doing a two-part series on Anne, and thank you so much to Anne for being a lesbian that we talked about coincidentally who now has a TV show. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's been good for us. I fell in love with your ability to intersect intelligence, humour, and engaging dialogue into these stories about our history. I feel like I've learned more about history from this podcast than I ever did in all of school. I love that you don't just talk about the information you find on each person, but you dive into the context and you compare it to literary references and you ask intelligent questions. 
We sound so smart. We're yeah, we do smart. sound so smart. I always feel like when people talk about specific things that we do well, it's things that in that episode we like screwed up really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I we don't do this anymore. No context for sports. <laughs> yep, none at all. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and you skillfully weave in your personal experiences and opinions, which I love. I just can't say enough about how much I enjoy listening to you all. Thank you so much for sharing this with us and adding a much needed dose of articulated intelligence and humor to the podcast world. If you're taking requests, I want to suggest a queerest fiction slash fact crossover on the new TV show Gentleman Jack based on the life of Ben Lister. And if you're not too busy, turn it into an eight-part series covering each episode. <laughs> Winky emoji. <laughs> We should do something on Gentleman Jack. We really Jack. should do something on Gentleman Jack. We don't have time to do a, like, per episode. Gross. Yeah, I think we have enough, like, stuff to say about it to make that good listening for anyone, to be honest. But I think um, we should talk about Gentleman But yeah, about we should Jack. talk about Gentleman Jack. Yeah. Maybe I'll drag myself through Anne's diaries again to be able to talk about how they reference them. But, like, probably not. <laughs> I know you loved reading about her repairing her pavement. Oh, God, she repaired that pavement so hard, guys. <laughs> I haven't actually seen... I've only seen a couple of episodes of the show, so I'm not sure if the pavement repairing has made it in. I think that the show is actually... I can't remember when the pavement was repaired. And this isn't my fault. This is the content we're having. It's Anne, so don't at me. <laughs> but I think that it may have been complete by the time she, like, met Anne Walker. Ah, so, okay. like, this might be a post-pavement canon. Flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, thank you very much for your review. I'm sorry I make all of you regret reviewing this. (laughs) I'm really glad you enjoyed the Anne episodes, and I would like to talk about her again. The last one we are going to read is from Russia, not America, which is very exciting. I don't know if we've had a Russian review. I don't think think so. We don't have a lot of Russian listeners, so it's very exciting to hear from one of you. The username is Atatogram. I'm very sorry that that doesn't sound the same coming out of my mouth as it no doubt does in your head. And it's titled, thanks a lot for mispronouncing my username. Um, (laughs) The podcast is super informative with a very friendly atmosphere. I was pleasantly surprised when triggers were listed in the beginning of one of the episodes. Regards from Russia. I'm glad that the trigger warnings were helpful. Yeah. I hope that they're worth doing. Given this episode existing, I feel like they're worth doing. Yeah. 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 Um, So I'm glad that someone found them helpful. Thank you for your review. If you are interested in supporting us in ways that are not reviewing us or just like telling your friends about us, we do have a red bubble now. So you can buy things with our logo on it and wear them on your physical human form. Or you can put them on a monkey that is being raised like a human child. <laughs> For example. For example. Just if you have that option. If you available. have that option. We also have a Patreon now where you can pledge a monthly amount to help us buy research materials that we can't currently access or to work towards creating enough savings that our sound isn't something that is putting people off. We're only just getting started with Patreon now and we're just kind of feeling out exactly how we want it to work. But we have some rewards on offer. We will show you out this podcast for a certain amount. We'll send you some free stuff. We'll let you vote in polls to decide what we talk about. So if you want to make us your personal dancing monkeys who are being raised as human children, (laughs) then you can find us on Patreon. We'll be back on the 1st of August when Jason and I are going to be talking about the Epic of Gilgamesh. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then.